Let's pray together. Lord, we want to thank you for who you are, having made us. Lord, we know that we are fearfully and wonderfully made. Lord, we thank you that you are the creator of all things. Lord, we praise you for your wonderful creation. We see it in the mountains. We see the snow. We see the rain. Lord, we see the, the creation that you've made blooming and blossoming. Lord, we thank you that you are patient with us. We are certainly undeserving of so great a salvation. We thank you, Lord, that not only have you offered through Jesus the peace with you, but you also called us individually to have that peace. Lord, we confess that although we are people who are saved by your grace, Lord, that we often still choose to sin. We walk away from your commands, and we are in constant need of forgiveness. Lord, what a great reminder you are of an everlasting peace, an everlasting forgiveness. We thank you that you are not only the creator, but the sustainer of all life. Lord, we ask that <clears throat> as we have many people sick in our church, cancer, other diagnoses that are not looking good, Lord, you know those needs, certainly the, the needs of the spouse. And Lord, we ask that you would heal those that it is within your will to heal. Lord, we ask that you would bless the families as they confront the reality of our mortality on earth. Lord, I, I appreciate John Owen's The Death of Death, recognizing that as, as we die on earth, that it's the beginning of our life in heaven. That the death of life on earth is the beginning of all good things. That the death of life on earth is the death of sorrows, it's the death of pain, it's the death of our illness. So Lord, we pray that we would continue to have a heavenly perspective, that we would not only see the, uh, the undesirable parts of death, but we would see the hope of all eternity that we would not get fixated on the things of earth, but we would have a fixation on the things that are unseen, the things that are yet to come. Lord, we also ask that you would bless the ministries that we partner with, our missionaries around the world. Dee, as she goes to retrieve the body of John, Lord, certainly so much difficulty and pain that she'll have. Our other missionaries that are in situations that are dangerous, that their lives are at risk and undisclosed places. Lord, you've called them to a great risk, but also a great reward. Lord, we know that they truly store their treasure in heaven where moth and rust do not destroy, where thieves do not break in and steal. Lord, we pray that you would bless them for being willing to share your good news around the world. Lord, as we look to Easter, Lord, we pray that not only today, but this upcoming week, as people would consider the meaning of Easter, that as many unbelieving people will come and hear your good news next week, believing themselves to be followers of Jesus. Lord, we pray that you would convict them of their sin, that you would challenge them in their belief. Lord, we pray that you would bring many people to know your son Jesus through faith in him, through his death on the cross and his resurrection bodily from the tomb. Lord, we pray that this is a great day coming up that is one of honor to you for your sacrifice of your son and 
one of honor to Jesus for his sacrifice on the cross. Lord, as we look at your word today, we pray, Lord, that we would see the significance of Jesus fulfilling the prophecy, that we would see the significance of Jesus bringing peace to the earth and peace between you and between us. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, go ahead and turn with me to Luke chapter 19. <clears throat> We're going to be looking at the triumphal entry. Jared, let me know if you want me to switch to the handheld and I can do that. My daughter Lydia, our fourth oldest, and I had, we'd all gone as a family to a pumpkin patch a few years ago. And we had gone with some friends, and so the first thing we all did was go through this cornfield maze, and Lydia and I were just kind of hanging out, and she was just wandering through the cornfield maze, and so I just followed her around. Everybody else had gone through the maze and then gone off to do other parts of this pumpkin patch. They had like a bounce thing and a hay ride, and so Lydia and I just kind of wandered through the maze, and eventually she was getting tired, and so... I decided, okay, now we'll try to find our way out instead of just letting the toddler wander us around and the cornfield maze lost. And so, to my best effort, I wandered us around in the cornfield maze lost for a while. And then eventually I gave up. And so I pulled out my phone and I opened the maps. I was just going to like look and see where we were and then try to turn the right direction and find where we were supposed to be and then move that way. But we were out in the middle of nowhere, so there was no signal. And... <laughs> So these like kids just kept running past us and they're like, the exit's this way. And we're like, okay, let's go this way. And then there's no exit. And so, but there was like these little like paths that were knocked down. Like they had like harvested some of the corn to make a path, but then kids had just knocked down some of the corn. And so we're like, we're going to cheat and we're just going to go through these like little paths. And that didn't help either. And so we just wandered and now I'm carrying her because she's tired and I'm tired and it took us forever as we just walked and walked and walked around, lost in the corn maze. So if she grows up and needs therapy for corn mazes, it'll <laughs> definitely be my fault for just letting her lead us wherever we ended up. But then in our passage today, we see that same type of thing from the Pharisees. The Pharisees, knowing that there's something better to come, and yet choosing to stay lost in the maze, wandering around in circles. See, up until this point in Luke, and up until this point, the day that we call Palm Sunday, a week from Easter, five days from when Jesus dies on the cross, Jesus had been telling people not to tell them, not to tell everybody who he was and what he was doing. His ministry was not meant to be an affront to the religious leaders and to the Pharisees. But on this day, Palm Sunday, everything changes. Jesus goes into Jerusalem as a king. He goes into Jerusalem, and there's no way that the Pharisees, that the religious elite, that the chief priests and the Sanhedrin cannot be confronted with this man who is now publicly saying he is the king to come. Palm Sunday signifies the day that Jesus says to everyone, I am the Messiah. 
Not only that, but Jesus proves that by accepting the messianic praise from the people. Let's read Luke 19, starting in verse 28. It says, After he had said these things, he went on ahead, going up to Jerusalem. As he approached Bethphage and Bethany, at the place called the Mount of Olives, he sent two of the disciples ahead. So Jesus here is going up to Jerusalem, and if you've never seen a map of the city of Jerusalem, kind of a, a mile or so away to the east is the city of Bethany and the Mount of Olives. From the Mount of Olives and Bethany, you go down a hill into the Kidron Valley and then back up to Jerusalem. But you'll notice it says that they had gone up to Jerusalem, and that's how the Jews spoke. They always went up to Jerusalem. Nobody went down into Jerusalem. It was always up. Even though the Mount of Olives was 700 feet higher in elevation than Jerusalem, so even though they were looking down on Jerusalem, everybody goes up to Jerusalem. And it says that from the Mount of Olives, he had sent two of his disciples. They're going to go into the city, and he said to them, go into the village ahead of you. So Jesus here has set his face toward Jerusalem. We see that in Luke chapter 9, that he was determined from that point in his ministry that he was going to Jerusalem. And now we see here that on their way, this progression that we're going to look at, this triumphal entry starts here and starts moving progressively toward Jerusalem. As Jesus moves toward Jerusalem, physically, him and his disciples are physically going, it's also an emotional and mental and spiritual journey toward Jerusalem. Jesus, Jesus isn't just going for the Passover. Certainly, the people, his disciples and Jesus had gone into Jerusalem many times for the Passover, but this time was different. Jesus' determination to go to Jerusalem was in anticipation of Friday. Jesus was not just going for another Passover. He was going for his final Passover, for the last time that Jesus would enter Jerusalem. So he sends his two disciples ahead, and he tells them, go into the village, and as you enter it, you'll find a young donkey tied there, on which no one has ever sat. Untie it and bring it. And if anyone asks you, why are you untying it, say this, the Lord needs it. Jesus had a need for a donkey. He needed the donkey, which we'll look at in a minute, for a specific reason. Along with Jesus having this need for a donkey, he's also the one that knows your needs. He knows that you have needs as he had needs. He knows that when we have needs, he asks us to come to him. Jesus says, come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, I'll give you rest. The writer of Hebrews says in Hebrews 4.16, let us approach the throne of grace with boldness so that we may find mercy and receive grace to help us in time of need. As we approach the throne, God's throne, to receive mercy and grace, grace is that which we don't deserve. God's forgiveness of our sins is something we don't deserve. Mercy is kind of the inverse of that. Mercy is 
not being given what we deserve. We deserve to be punished for our sin, and God shows us mercy. And we don't deserve heaven because we've sinned. But in God's grace, he gives us something that we don't deserve. So we can approach God's throne and ask of him to meet our needs. In Matthew 6, we're going to look at this in a couple weeks. Jesus says, Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. All of the needs that we have in life, the things that we deal with, we bring those things to God, and we give them to God. We seek first his righteousness and let him deal with all of the other things. So the Lord needed a donkey. Verse 32. So those who were sent, the two men that were sent out to find the donkey, left and found it just as he had told them. As they were untying the young donkey, its owners said to them, Why are you untying the donkey? You'll notice they had at least two owners of the donkey. Such poverty required multiple people to share ownership of a donkey. And also, it's a very valid question. That's my donkey. If someone's going and getting into your car, a very appropriate question would be, why are you getting into my car? And if someone says the Lord needs it, I don't know what to tell you. Because <laughs> they're just like, okay, the Lord needs it, go ahead. Jesus had told them that's exactly what was going to happen, then it happened, so I don't know. But the donkey that Jesus sought out was for a purpose. The purpose we find in Zechariah chapter 9, and if you're in your Bible, turn a couple pages to the left. You've got Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. That's the gospel writers. Right before that, you get into the Old Testament, Malachi, and right before that is Zechariah. So Zechariah, Malachi, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Turn to Zechariah chapter 9. We'll stay there for a minute. So the reason that Jesus needs this donkey is seen in Zechariah 9. This is a prophecy that Zechariah has. <clears throat> Zechariah says, Rejoice greatly, daughter Zion. Shout in triumph, daughter Jerusalem. These are exclamatory, exciting things that is going to happen. He says, Look, your king is coming to you. He is righteous and victorious, humble and riding on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. The donkey was a sign of peace. Kings would ride on a donkey in times of peace. They would enter into a city on a donkey, showing that they have no need for war because they have conquered, and now they are at peace. So Jesus coming into the city of Jerusalem on a donkey signified that he was coming in as a peaceful king. Zechariah 9 verse 10 says, I will cut off the chariot from Ephraim and the horse from Jerusalem. The bow of war will be removed, and he will proclaim peace to the nations. His dominion will extend from sea to sea, from the Euphrates River to the ends of the earth. So this king who is coming, rejoice greatly, daughter Zion, shout and triumph, daughter Jerusalem. This king that is coming, righteous and victorious on a donkey, will cut off the chariot. The chariot was the greatest war vehicle of the day. A man standing stood no chance against a chariot. There was nothing he could do against a chariot being drawn by horses. 
He says, I will cut off the chariot from Ephraim and the horse from Jerusalem. So you've got the war vehicle, you've got the war animal. The horse was the, the animal of war. The bow of war will be removed. So now you've got the vehicle, the animal, the weapon of war. And he, this coming Messiah, will proclaim peace to the nations. So you have these people shouting excitedly about their king righteously coming humbly on a donkey, destroying all the things of war, and he will proclaim peace to the nations. When Jesus came, he came to seek and save the lost. He came to proclaim peace between God and man. He came to reconcile the lost sheep to himself. There's one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus. There's no other name under heaven given to man by which they must be saved. There's one way. It's the way and the truth and the life. Jesus says, nobody comes to the Father except through me. This prophecy of peace is fulfilled in Jesus. And Zechariah was looking forward and saying, he will come humbly on a donkey. He'll destroy all these war Things And he will come and usher in a time of peace. The peace is not what they expected. They expected a national peace, a peace between them and the Romans where the Romans would be kicked out and they would no longer be subject to their captors and to their overseers. But Jesus didn't come to bring peace to the nation. He came to bring peace to the hearts of men. Turn back with me to Luke 19. So Jesus goes and gets this donkey. He sends the men, they go and get the donkey. The donkey signifying peace. Jesus coming to bring peace, the prince of peace. Between that day, 2,000 or so years ago, and sometime in the future, Jesus gives up the donkey and gets on a horse. Revelation 19.11 says that Jesus comes with war and with judgment. We are in this in-between time, this grace-filled time between Jesus coming prophetically and bringing peace between God and man and sometime in the future, Jesus returning on a white horse to wage war against those who have rejected his peace. You see, the triumphal entry is Jesus coming and saying, today I usher in peace between God and man. But we'll see there's a warning because one day the time of peace ends. The offer of peace is withdrawn and there's no longer peace between God and and the unrepentant sinners. There's no longer peace available to those who have chosen not to repent. Verse 34, they said to the owners of the donkey, the Lord needs it. Then they brought it to Jesus. And notice the kingly attributes here. They were throwing their clothes on the donkey as a saddle. They didn't want Jesus to have to sit on the donkey. They helped Jesus get on it. Certainly, he was capable of getting on a donkey. And as he was going along, they were spreading their clothes on the road. The same thing that we see in 2 Samuel 9.13 as King Jehu is walking up the steps and they're putting their cloaks on the steps so that 
The king doesn't have to onto the bare floor, so they put their clothes down on the floor for the king. It says, verse 37, Now they came near the path of the Mount of Olives, and the whole crowd of the disciples began to praise God joyfully with a loud voice for all the miracles they had seen. So we have this large crowd of people that some of which have been following Jesus, some of which are kind of just tagging along now that they see this excitement. The people are shouting that the Messiah has come. And this crowd, starting back at Bethany, has seen the miracles. Now, all four of the gospel writers, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, all record this triumphal entry. There's only like 10 or 11 or so different parts of Jesus' life that all four of the gospel writers talk about. And almost all of them start here and go to the end of Jesus' life. This week of Jesus' life, his last week on earth, is very significant biblically. It starts with him bringing peace. The fulfillment of the peace is on the cross, and the proof that he is capable of bringing peace is the empty tomb. And it all started when Jesus did the miracles. The people praised God joyfully with a loud voice for all the miracles they had seen. The way that John, the gospel writer John, lays this out is Jesus had gone to visit Lazarus, but he had died. And Lazarus had been in the tomb for four days. And Jesus goes and says, Lazarus, come out. And they're like, but he's dead and he's been in there for days. That's, we don't want to bring him out. And Jesus calls Lazarus out, and he raises him from the dead, and he walks out of the tomb. So the people had seen this miracle that Lazarus was dead, and now he's alive, and they're praising God joyfully. The one who raised Lazarus from the dead is obviously the king. Now he's riding on a donkey. He's fulfilling the prophecy. The problem, though, is that the Pharisees also saw Jesus raise Lazarus from the dead. And they've got a vested interest in making sure Jesus dies because he's a threat to everything they know. They're still wandering the maze, not recognizing that Jesus is the way out. So they want Jesus dead because he's raised Lazarus from the dead. So they put a warrant, a first century warrant out and say, anybody that sees him, let us know so that we can arrest him. And they also say, let's go ahead and kill Lazarus too, because he's very much a witness to this, having been dead and now having been raised to life. So we need to kill Lazarus, kill Jesus, and keep the Romans off our backs. So the religious leaders decide to murder two men because they don't like what happened. On the other side, you've got all the people this great crowd of people causing problems because they're praising God joyfully with a loud voice because of the miracles. So these two things are coming to a head, and it comes to a head as the people are saying in verse 38, blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. Psalm 118.26, a messianic praise. They are purposefully saying, this is the Messiah. Blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the other gospel writers. God saves. God is going to save them through this man. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest heaven. 
the people that are following Jesus have no doubt about what they're doing. They've found the Messiah. He's humble. He's riding on a donkey. They probably know some of the other prophecies that Jesus has fulfilled. And they see this perfect picture of a Messiah. So they're walking with Jesus, shouting messianic things. And then verse 39, everything changes. The Pharisees from the crowd told him, Rebuke your disciples, teacher. The Pharisees that probably were not the ones that wanted to murder Jesus. You know, like, they know it's murder. Jesus hasn't done anything. Lazarus hasn't done anything that's, in their mind, yet worthy of murder. So these Pharisees that come to Jesus probably come more with a warning They'd already been told, if you see him, tell us. We're going to arrest him. But these ones come to him, and they're like, Jesus, you got to calm them down. These people are saying, you're the Messiah. Rebuke them. Tell them to stop doing that. They're going to kill you. I shouldn't even be here. They want you to be arrested. Jesus, you got to get these people to relax. It's a, probably a, as kind of a warning as they can give Jesus, but Jesus is no longer the prophet out in Galilee. He's no longer the prophet wandering in the country and visiting little towns. Jesus says to them in verse 40, He answered, I tell you, if they were to keep silent, the stones would cry out. Jesus turns to the Pharisees and rebukes them and says, You don't get it. If they don't say these things, the very rocks themselves will cry out. Romans 1.20 says, For his invisible attributes, this is speaking of God, God's invisible attributes, that is his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly seen since the creation of the world, being understood through what he has made. And as a result, people are without excuse. Jesus is saying, God's creation speaks. The sky is clear right now. It's been raining. There's snow on the mountains. You can go out and see the mountains. They're beautiful. God's creation speaks that this is not random chaos. Things are not devolving into chaos. They were created. And Jesus is saying, if these people stop shouting the praises of the Messiah, the very creation of God would rise up and they would shout. It's ignorance to say there is no creator because the creation itself proves there is a creator. Jesus is telling them the truth will come out. The truth will speak for itself. These Pharisees knew of Jesus. Jesus says, anyone who hears me when I knock and I stand at the door and I knock, if anyone opens the door and lets me in, I will enter in. And Jesus knocked at the door of the Pharisees' hearts, and nobody answered. Repeatedly, they did not know what would bring them peace. See, Jesus, when he came to them, came in peace. And in verse 41, Jesus is now even more within sight of Jerusalem. 
It says, as he approached and saw the city, he wept for it. Saying, if you knew this day, what would bring peace? But now it is hidden from your eyes. You know, one of the problems that I have with Palm Sunday, with Good Friday, with Easter, with Christmas, is that if you've been in church more than a few years, you've heard it preached, you've heard it on the radio, you've heard the verses read, and they become just part of Christianity. We read them, we know the donkey, we know the palm leaves, we know that Jesus is the Messiah to come. So what I always try to look for is something that I feel like the Lord has given me that's new or a perspective that's different, a fresh look at this. And so when I was reading all four of the Gospels and just praying, I feel like I read this verse 42. If you knew this day, what would bring peace? And it really struck me that this is what the triumphal entry is about. It's about the king who was prophesied long ago. The prince of peace coming in humbly on a donkey. He sees the city and he weeps over the city, knowing that the city does not know what would bring them peace. The people are shouting, Hosanna, blessed be the king of kings. And in a few days, the people will turn on him and shout, crucify him. And he weeps because if you knew this day, what would bring peace? See, peace isn't found in what we typically want to find peace in. Having all the money in the world, having all the health in the world, having no concerns, those things do not bring peace. Jesus was a man of peace, had nowhere to lay his head, had no money, had no earthly treasures. The king of kings had to borrow a donkey. The lord of lords had nowhere to lay his head. The prince of peace was buried in someone else's tomb. The bread of life had to borrow bread from a kid so that he could multiply it and feed people. Peace is not found in the things of this world. Peace is, if you knew this day, what would bring peace? If you knew this day, who would bring peace? Probably better said. Peace is not brought through the tangible, immaterial, or any other earthly things that are available. If you knew this day, who would bring peace? Peace is only found in faithfulness to God. Peace is only found through Jesus, the mediator. You know, our sin is an offense to God. Anything that we do that breaks God's law brings condemnation and judgment on ourselves. Jesus took all of our sin, packaged it up, and nailed it to the cross. His blood figuratively covered over 
those sins that were nailed to the cross and made them as white as snow. So you are as white as snow. Your sins forgiven, and Jesus in his hand holds out a treaty to you and says, this is your treaty of peace. I can give you peace between you and God. Do you want peace with God? Do you know this day what would bring peace? Peace is not the absence of war. Peace is being able to rest. Peace is being able to say, although everything else is in turmoil, I can rest. I can give my burdens to the Lord. I can accept Jesus' treaty of peace so that I can have peace with God. If you knew this day, who would bring peace? Because it's only found in Jesus. The Pharisees were like men who had wandered in the desert and Jesus stands offering them water. You remember the Samaritan woman who draws water from the well and Jesus goes to her and says, you know, you're going to drink that water and be thirsty again, but I have living water. You drink my water and you'll never be thirsty again. She says, I'll take it. Jesus extends the peace treaty. She says, that sounds better than everything I have. The Pharisees, though, they walk right past the author of life. They walk right past the living water because they think they see a mirage. And they're like, that's where we're going to go. We're going to find water and bread and security. And we're going to find hope and we're going to find health and we're going to find happiness and we're going to find peace. And they walk right past Jesus in search of something that only Jesus can give. So my question for us is, do you know what would bring peace? We've all searched for it. We've all walked past Jesus trying to find peace. The farther we go toward the mirage, the farther we are from the only one who can give us peace. And that's where we come to this part of the story. Jesus comes as the Prince of Peace, humble and lowly and riding on a donkey. And he says to the Pharisees, you're not getting it. The stones will speak of me if these people don't. The promise is, if you knew this day, what would bring peace? But then comes the warning but it is now hidden from your eyes. Verse 43, For the days will come on you when your enemies will build a barricade around you, surround you, and hem you in on every side. They will crush you and your children among you to the ground, and they will not leave one stone on another in your midst. This is all prophetic that Jesus is speaking of, and it all happens about 40 years later. A Roman general by the name of Titus comes in and lays siege to Jerusalem. And he builds a barricade. He surrounds them. He hems them in on every side. Josephus, a Jewish writer, describes in graphic detail unmentionable ways that not only the Jews killed each other, 
while they were under siege, the fighting factions all trying to gather power and the things they did to one another. But then when the Romans finally breached the wall, Josephus describes, they will crush you and your children among you to the ground. They will not leave one stone on another in your midst. And in AD 70, having conquered Jerusalem, Titus says, leave the three tallest pillars, the three tallest towers standing in Jerusalem, but level everything else. Titus wants this contrast of this once great city, look how tall their towers were, but also it's been turned to rubble. He wanted people to believe it was uninhabitable and never lived in, but then be struck by the towers that were so great. Titus wanted people to know that this once great city was destroyed at his hand. And Jesus tells them, if you would have known this day what would have brought peace, but it's hidden from your eyes. Soon the destruction is coming. You'll be barricaded and hemmed in. You and your children will be crushed. The reason is the very last part of 44. Because you did not recognize the time when God visited you. The prince of peace has come lowly and humbly and riding on a donkey, destroyed all the weapons of war. They're not needed because he brings peace to the nations. He spreads peace from the Euphrates to the ends of the earth. And here he is, blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest heaven. Hosanna. But you did not know this day what would bring peace because you did not recognize the time when God visited you. The author Luke uses that type of phrase that God visited four different times. Chapter 1, Zechariah is prophesying that God has visited us. What a great prophecy of John the Baptist preparing the way, the Messiah being born. 168 and 78, Zechariah says God has visited us. And then again in chapter 7, Jesus brings back to life the son of a widow who had died and raised him from the dead. And all the people are shouting and saying, wow, look what this miracle is. God has visited us. And the fourth time is this warning that you didn't recognize the time that God visited you. You saw the miracles. You saw the prophecy fulfilled. You saw the offer of peace, the treaty of peace. But you did not recognize the time that God visited you. So do we know what would bring peace? Do we know who would bring peace? The promise of peace starts on Palm Sunday. As Jesus goes about his week, the peace treaty is signed on the cross. 
another prophecy from Isaiah 53, verse 5. But he was pierced because of our rebellion, crushed because of our iniquities. The punishment for our peace was on him, and we are healed by his wounds. Our rightful punishment that we deserve for our sin and the peace treaty being offered to us happen at the same time that we give our sin to Jesus. He pays for them on the the cross, and we are healed. We are forgiven because of his sacrifice. He signs the treaty and hands it to us. And one day, God stands to judge And we have a treaty. It says, hey, we're on the same team. Jesus paid for my sin. I deserve that judgment. But I have mercy here. The punishment for our peace was on him. But that doesn't happen except for by one way. Romans 4 and 5 say, He, Jesus, was delivered up for our trespasses and raised for our justification. Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus was delivered up because of our sin. To cover our sin, he was put on the cross. And we are justified, which means we are made right. We stand just before God by faith in Jesus. We have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. There's no other way. Jesus says he is the way and the truth and the life. There's no other way. There's not a lot of ways to heaven. There's not a lot of paths to God. There's one, and it's through his son, Jesus. The proof of that is the empty tomb. The proof that through the cross we have forgiveness of our sins because of Jesus and our faith in him. In the empty tomb, John 11, Jesus says, I am the resurrection and the life. The one who believes in me, even if he dies, will live. Everyone who lives and believes in me will never die. Do you believe this? You know, Jesus always calls people to a point. Do you believe this? Do you believe that because of the cross, Because of the Messiah, the foretold Messiah, dying on the cross from your sins, raised from the dead, that even though you die, you never die. Because the other way is even though you live, you never live. I was talking with a lady this morning, and her husband died. It's almost been a year now. I told her about that that hope that we have. That hope is that Even though we die, we live. Everyone who lives and believes in me will never die. Jesus knew that the way of the cross, this week of passion for him, was costly. That he will be pierced and crushed, mocked and insulted and spat upon and flogged and killed And by his stripes, we are healed. By his wounds, we are saved. But it requires surrender. 
It requires faith, and it requires that we let go of everything else that otherwise we might hold on to, because there's only one way. In the 1920s, a track star named Eric Little refused to run on Sunday. He still did great, even though he refused to run on Sunday, and he was world famous. But after that, he went back to China to be a missionary, and he was arrested for being a Christian. He was put in an internment camp. About 20 years later, he developed a brain tumor and fell into a coma. And he laid in the bed in a coma. And the seconds before he died, a nurse was in his room and she said that he had convulsed and so she went over to check on him and he said, complete surrender and died. That's what it takes to have peace with God. If you knew this day, who would bring peace? And do you recognize the time when God has visited you? Either we know peace with God, or we reject peace, and the warning is of destruction. Corey's going to come and take us in a time of communion. I love that communion is a time for us to remember the blood and the sacrifice of Jesus. You know, do this in remembrance of me that through his sacrifice that we can have peace with God. Let's pray. Lord, we know that you are the author and perfecter of our salvation. That you have brought us peace in a time that we were peaceless, rest when we were restless, hope when we were hopeless. Lord, thank you that you have bought us peace through the blood of Christ. It's in his name we pray. Amen.